Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit a new monument to NASA's shuttle program at Spaceview Park in Titusville. The monument is to honor not the shuttle per se, but the men and women that uh, that worked on it, uh, that were a part of making it such a success. We'll discuss the trial and imprisonment of Jonathan Walker at Pensacola in the 1840s. Most people may not be familiar with the name, but in the 1840s, everyone in America would have been familiar with this particular case. And we'll hear about the popular illegal game of Lita in Tampa. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Coming up on the five-minute point, four, three, two, one, mark. T-minus five minutes and counting. We have had a go for APU start. APU start is in work. This is a start sequence. The final chase plane is taken off from Patrick Air Force Base. T-minus 4 minutes, 42 seconds, and counting. The shuttle Columbia was launched for the first time on April 12, 1981, beginning a 30-year space program for NASA. T-minus 4 minutes, 30 seconds, and counting. Once we get the APU start, we have a total of 12 minutes of hydrazine supply for running the APUs prior to a liftoff. Everything going very smoothly in this count. The APU start is complete, T-minus 4 minutes, 10 seconds, and counting. As preparation for main engine ignition, the main fuel valve heaters have been turned off. T-minus 3 minutes, 57 seconds, and counting. The final helium purge on the shuttle main engine has been started in preparation for engine start. The liquid oxygen replenish system has been turned off in preparation for pressurization of the tanks uh, for the launch. T-minus 3 minutes, 35 seconds, and counting. The Elevon speed brake and rudder are being moved through a pre-programmed pattern to assure that they'll be ready for use in flight. Planning for the shuttle program began in 1972, but it was the launch of Columbia nine years later that made the program a reality. By coincidence, the launch occurred on the 20th anniversary of the first manned spaceflight by cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. The first shuttle had a two-person crew, experienced Apollo astronaut John Young and rookie astronaut Robert Crippen. Well, it was an exciting time. It was one of the highlights of my life to be able to fly with John Young, uh, one of my heroes, and uh, the mission came off better than I think either John or I could have expected. Bob Crippen flew a total of four shuttle missions. He was commander of the first five-person crew, which included Sally Ride, the first American woman in space, and the first seven-person crew. Even though he became an experienced shuttle astronaut, Crippen says that the missions never became routine. 
<laughs> no, it, even on the last flight at 135, it was not routine. It would, uh, it's a great machine, but it's that kind of business is not routine. Crippen says that each mission was exciting, including his flight to repair the Solar Maximum Mission satellite, but that the first shuttle launch was particularly special. Uh, well, I'd say all of them. <laughs> they're all unique in their own way. Uh, STS-1, of course, being the first flight uh, on a vehicle that had never been flown before, even unmanned. Uh, that was kind of unique for going into space, so that has to stand out uh, forever. But I did uh, STS-7, uh, 41C, where we went up and rescued a satellite, and then 41G. Uh, Sally Ride flew with me both their flights. Uh, it was all fun and exciting. I was going to do the first flight out of Vandenberg, but uh, that went away after we lost Challenger. During the 30 years and 135 missions of the shuttle program, two flights ended in disaster. Challenger was lost 73 seconds after liftoff on January 28, 1986, and Columbia exploded about 16 minutes before its expected touchdown on February 1, 2003. Bob Crippen commanded missions on both of those shuttles. Both the Columbia and the Challenger uh, were very dear to me, both great ships, uh, and uh, there were some good friends on both of those flights that uh, we lost, so that was heartbreaking, obviously. The U.S. Spacewalk of Fame in Titusville led efforts to create a large monument to the shuttle program. The $350,000 structure joins monuments to NASA's other programs in Spaceview Park. Six black granite panels have relief sculptures describing the shuttle program. An eight-ton abstract steel shuttle on top of the panels points toward the sky. Bob Crippen. Oh, it's great. The uh the monument is to honor not the shuttle per se, but the men and women that uh, that worked on it, uh, that were part of making it such a success, and uh, they uh, they did right by me in all of my capacities from flying to management, uh, and so I wanted to acknowledge that. At the dedication of the shuttle monument, hundreds of space workers gathered in Spaceview Park. Many feel that the shuttle program ended too early with the launch of Atlantis on January 8, 2011. Bob Crippen agrees. In my opinion, the program could have gone on. Uh, after we lost Columbia, it was uh, doubtful that it would be continued. However, I didn't expect to see it canceled and not have a, uh, a way of putting astronauts into space from the United States. Uh, having to depend upon Russia is uh, rather heartbreaking to me. Uh, and I'll be glad when we get a capability to put our people back up there again ourselves. Coming up on T-minus three minutes, T-minus three minutes and counting. The engine gimbal, our movement check is underway to assure they're ready for flight control. T-minus 2 minutes, 52 seconds. The LOX valve on the external tank has been closed and pressurization has begun. After the tank is pressurized, the hold capability is limited to 3 minutes, 36 seconds. T-minus 2 minutes, 40 seconds. And counting, the... The fuel cell ground supply of oxygen and hydrogen has been terminated, and the vehicle is using its onboard supply. T-minus 2 minutes, 25 seconds, and counting. T-minus 2 minutes, 15 seconds. The pressure in the LOX tank is at flight pressure. Coming up on just 2 minutes away from launch. T-minus two minutes, mark, and counting. The liquid hydrogen vent valve has been closed and flight pressurization is underway. T-minus one minute, 50 seconds, and counting. 
Chuck Hannon has just said smooth sailing, baby, to astronauts John Young and Bob Crippen. T-minus one minute, 35 seconds, and counting. The names of thousands of space workers are etched on pylons throughout Spaceview Park. Mitch Morgan worked with three different companies at the Kennedy Space Center over a 20-year period, Rockwell, Lockheed Martin, and United Space Alliance. Well, the original days, I was involved with analyzing all the pull test data on every tile in Columbia. We spent hours and hours uh, reviewing the pull test. They called it bond verification to ensure that the tiles would not come off at launch. <laughs> so we worked on that for about a year and a half and rejected quite a few of them that went back to California to be analyzed and back again. And we were very blessed on the launch to only lose a couple of the low temperature tiles on the upper fuselage and nothing that ever endangered the astronauts. George Damoff's name appears on both the Apollo Monument and the Shuttle Monument. He lives in a condo overlooking Spaceview Park. Every American manned launch into space originated from Kennedy Space Center, and Spaceview Park in Titusville has provided a front row seat for each of them. Well, I worked at first at White Sands Missile Range, way back before the shuttle started processing down here. We were working on mission aboard for Apollo. And then uh, later on, after Apollo, I worked on the shuttle for 12 years in Houston. I was a supervisor of test operations. We had a laboratory that tested the software for every shuttle mission to make sure that the software was good, there were no glitches in it or anything like that. And I worked there 12 years. I enjoyed the whole program. It's a great career. Damoff is proud to show his grandkids his name on the NASA monuments. He's hopeful that America will revive the space program, but says it's hard to start from scratch. The problem I see with the shuttle, uh, the space program, there's too much uh, space between programs. And I was here when Apollo went down and there was the same thing happened there. A lot of people were laid off and had to move. And then they built up to shuttle again. And then uh, the same thing happened on the shuttle. You know, we lost many, many people from here in Titusville and uh, Brevard County. As Damoff looks across the water to the Kennedy Space Center, he can imagine more manned flights in the near future. I hope it does. I uh, retired from Boeing. I was Rockwell. But uh, within the next year or two, they'll be building up again and start doing some manned launches. Ozzy Osband works with the U.S. Spacewalk of Fame and says that the monuments at Spaceview Park help inform people about the value of the space program. People should be supporting this sort of thing because uh, the dollars we spend are not spent in space. They're spent on the ground uh, supporting this, uh, the scientific research that goes on up there. And that's important stuff. And exploring the solar system and the universe. Uh, a lot of people think it's important because we learn a lot of things. The shuttle monument unveiling just happened to occur on the 15th anniversary of Florida's Space Coast getting the appropriate 321 area code. Osband was instrumental in making that happen. Uh, in fact, uh, I went to the Public Service Commission hearing when they were splitting 407 15 years ago and explained to them that Cape Canaveral, the countdown capital of the world, should get area code 321. So the way I look at it is, I asked for it, they approved it, so I think it's my area code, but I share. <laughs> NASA is still conducting launches and commercial space flights are happening, but America's space program is in a transitional phase. The shuttle monument dedication took place on November 2, 2014, an unusually cold and windy day. Astronaut Bob Crippen offered his thoughts on the current state of our space program. It's, it's not great. Uh, we've got several things going on, as you mentioned. Uh, the main thing the government is doing is associated with the uh, Space Launch System and Orion. Uh, we're going to be flying Orion uh, unmanned uh, in December. 
uh, and they're well on the way to building the space launch system, we'll be able to take uh, uh, take our crews beyond low Earth orbit, uh, back in the vicinity of the moon and beyond. Uh, so I think that's great. These commercial endeavors you talked about uh, are always challenging. Uh, Orbital Science has just lost a, a vehicle that was headed up to the uh, the space station with some cargo. Uh, that's disappointing, but uh, they'll uh, they'll correct that. And Virgin Atlantic just lost uh, Spaceship Two uh, yesterday, and they lost one of the crew members on board, and that is also very unfortunate. In addition to serving as an astronaut on four shuttle missions, Bob Crippen served as Deputy Director of Shuttle Operations at the Kennedy Space Center and Director of the Shuttle Program at NASA Headquarters in Washington, D.C. I'm a proponent for going back to the moon. Uh, We only did a few camping trips up there, and we really didn't explore it and exploit it. Uh, We should take advantage of that, and it would give us the experience necessary to go on to Mars. And we should go to Mars someday. I don't think uh, I'm going to live to see it, but uh, eventually we will get there. Astronaut Bob Crippen was at the dedication of the shuttle monument at Spaceview Park in Titusville. Crippen, along with John Young, flew on the very first shuttle mission, launched on April 12, 1981. T-minus one minute, 20 seconds and counting. We can see the purges of the main engines uh, as we prepare for ignition. T-minus one minute, 10 seconds and counting. Liquid hydrogen tank is at flight pressure. T-minus one minute, mark and counting. The firing system for the sound suppression water will be armed in just a couple seconds from now. It has been armed. T-minus 45 seconds and counting. T-minus 40 seconds and counting. The development flight instrumentation recorders are on. T-minus 35 seconds. We're just a few seconds away from switching to the redundant sense sequencer. T-minus 27 seconds. We have gone for redundant set sequencer start. T-minus 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15, 14, 13. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, or we've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. America's first space shuttle, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to shop for great books on Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Become a member of the Florida Historical Society by clicking on the Join Now button. You can also give a gift membership to someone else. That's myfloridahistory.org. Us to remind me I'm 
just a prisoner Don't let me be a prisoner From what command I stand and wait now From what rude master of mine Fade now I can't escape for it's too late now The Library of Florida History in Cocoa contains thousands of rare and out-of-print books. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society. Ben, you have here a first edition copy of The Trial and Imprisonment of Jonathan Walker at Pensacola, Florida. Yeah, that's right. This is one of the more rare uh, of the books that we have in our uh, rare book collection. Uh, and it's, as you mentioned, The Trial and Imprisonment of Jonathan Walker. And most people may not be familiar with the name, but in the 1840s, everyone in America would have been familiar with this particular case. Uh, Jonathan Walker was actually uh, born in Massachusetts in 1799. He's not a native Floridian. Uh, he was born and, and raised in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He worked as a, a career uh, merchant mariner. He was a captain, worked on whaling ships, had uh, sailed all over the world. Um, in fact, in the 1830s, he actually worked down in Mexico uh, to try and set up a, uh, a colony for escaped uh, slaves, African slaves from American plantations. Uh, so not only was he a mariner, but he was an, uh, an ardent abolitionist. Um, and at that time in American history, you know, the slave trade was... Um, uh, throughout the, the the United States and and it was um and there was a large group of of abolitionists who were beginning to rise up against uh the slave trade and the interstate slave trade uh, Walker being one of them in the early 1840s Walker decided to move to Pensacola which was in West Florida uh, he was at that time working as a shipwright and, and got a job uh, working at a railroad and brought his family there. But uh, what's interesting is that he didn't alter his abolitionist uh, mentality or actions. And unlike many other uh, white citizens of Pensacola, he did not own slaves, nor did he treat any of the um, uh, slave population uh, any differently than he would any other citizen. Um, and people took note of that. Uh, even though he was uh, cordial to everyone and, and had good re business relationships with people in, in Pensacola, uh, he would invite many of the uh, uh, people of African descent into his home for dinner, which at that time was uh, absolutely unheard of. Well, Florida, of course, was a slave state during the American Civil War, but this trial occurred and the book was published well before that. That's right. Uh, this all actually takes place in 1844, shortly after Walker had moved to Pensacola. Uh, because of the the atmosphere at the time, Walker decided to send his family, he had uh, two daughters and a wife at the time, sent them back to Massachusetts, and he re remained in Pensacola uh, to work on uh, some of his abolitionist activities. Um, and one of those activities was to help uh, slaves escape to freedom. Um, and one route, especially along the Gulf Coast of Florida, was to uh, either stow uh, sh slaves away on uh, commercial ships or to transfer them to um, a British colony, because at that time the British had outlawed the, the slave trade and um, they would not extradite the slaves back to the United States. And that's exactly what he tried to do. In 1844, he loaded a small uh, open boat with seven, uh, seven slaves and tried to get them from Pensacola 
around the southern tip of Florida to the Bahamas. Uh, unfortunately, within a couple of days, he uh, became very ill, and the seven men that he was sailing with were not uh, experienced sailors, and they were picked up by a, actually it was a, a, a wrecking ship, uh, brought them back to Key West. The government officials, territorial officials in Key West, then had them sent uh, back to Pensacola, where uh, Walker's imprisonment began. Um, what's particularly interesting about this case is that he was uh, held in, in solitary confinement um, and was charged with uh, stealing slaves. Um, and the, the punishment is what is particularly uh, extreme, many would say, for, for this time period. Um, the, he was imprisoned for about a month before the trial took place, and the, uh, the district officials decided uh, not to uh, hand down the hardest sentence, which would have been death, but rather to brand him uh, with the letters SS on his right hand. And they did that right in the courtroom. Uh, the jury took about 30 minutes to deliberate. Uh, they came back, uh, levied uh, fines totaling about $600, which in 1844 was quite a sum of money that he did not have. Uh, and then they tied, lashed his hand to the post and, uh, and branded uh, these two letters onto his uh, right hand just below his thumb. Hmm. And on the title page of this book, there's an illustration of that branding that you just described. And uh, in addition to the text, there are uh, other detailed uh, illustrations as well throughout the book, some of them dealing with other punishments. That's right. So uh, after Walker was branded, again, he was left in prison until he could pay the fines. And a number of his uh, abolitionist friends back in Massachusetts raised the funds and had him released. But by that time, he had spent 11 months in prison. Uh, and as soon as he was released, he decided to compile all of his notes into a a, a bit of a memoir, and that's what we're looking at today. It was published uh, in 1845 and included a number of these woodcuts. We're actually looking at uh, a woodcut engraving of the U.S. Marshal branding the author, and here you can see his hand is, is lashed to the uh, witness stand. Um, he was also, and I forgot to mention this, part of his punishment was to be confined to a pillory, which is one of the old medieval-style uh, types of punishment where um, uh, someone's head and hands are held inside of a large wood block in the public square. And you can see here in this woodcut, he's also being uh, pelted with rotten eggs. Uh, and the gentleman who's doing the pelting uh, or the throwing of the eggs was one of the slave owners um, whose uh, slave um, Walker had tried to, uh, tried to free in the Bahamas. So he was particularly angry with Walker and decided to find... Uh, as Walker puts it, the most vile of eggs in Pensacola to uh, throw at uh, throw at Walker. Uh, but the book is fairly short. It, it really only totals about 119 pages, but it details uh, his time uh, in solitary confinement and also uh, details some of his uh, sentiments, growing abolitionist uh, sentiments, uh, not only while he was in Florida, but traveling throughout the world. Well, really interesting artifact. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. I'm just a prisoner. Don't let me be a prisoner. This is Florida Frontiers. Gambling is popular in Florida, particularly at the Hard Rock casinos and on casino cruises. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com explains, gambling was popular in Florida even before it was legal. Every immigrant group brings their own customs and games of chance as well. In Cuba, one of the games of chances was the Cuban lottery, the Loteria. In Tampa, Florida, the Cubans who came continued to play the lottery 
eventually, in, in time, by, by really the 1890s, Cubans had developed their own version of the, of the Cuban lottery, uh, and they called it Bolita. That was Dr. Gary Mormino, Professor Emeritus at the University of South Florida at St. Petersburg. He spoke to me about the practice of Bolita, which was an illegal gambling game popular throughout much of the 20th century and similar to the lottery. Here, Dr. Mormino tells us how the game is played. It's very simple. You have ivory balls numbered 1 to 100. And what would happen is the bolitero, the bolita man, would come by your residence, your work office, or see you on the street, and you would place a bet with the bolitero. And you would bet on a number from 1 to 100. And you would give him a payment. could be a nickel, it could be a quarter, it could be a dollar. And in the early days, if your number came up on Saturday night, you were paid 80 to 1. So if you bet a nickel, you got $4. Uh, the bolita throw was quite an elaborate ritual. On Saturday night at one of the gambling emporiums in Ybor City, they would have all the balls in a bag, and they would throw the bag in a circle. A beautiful lady would cut the bottom of the bag and select a ball, and that would be the winning number. Uh, in, in time, it, it spun off to, to local variations of this, but uh, that was, that's the basis of bolita. Bolita is Spanish for little ball, and while the balls may have been small, their influence and impact were not. Although this was a game of chance, Bolita was at the center of a number of criminal enterprises that included criminal gangs, organized crime in Tampa, as well as local and state politicians. Dr. Mormino explains. Bolita grew in power in Tampa so that by the early 20th century, Bolita was influencing elections. Because you have to understand the principal reality of Belita is you can't have an illegal game with this big a following without police and law protection. So the police were being paid off. Judges were being paid off. I talked to gamblers and shady characters in Tampa who told me he took bags of money to the governor in the 1940s and 1950s. I talked to the bag man for Curtis Hickson, who was mayor of Tampa in the 1950s. So Belita became very, very powerful. Belita also drove a wedge between rival ethnic factions of organized crime in Tampa in the 1930s and 40s. Disputes over Belita led to the period in Tampa history known as the Era of Blood or the Belita Wars. Dr. Mormino describes where this all began. Prior to 1930s, Bolita was pretty much dominated by Cubans. The Italians in Ybor City in Tampa tended to, uh, their game, uh, their illegal preference was uh, bootlegging. What happened, though, in 1933, Prohibition ends, and uh, the, the market for, for bootleg whiskey is, is gone, so the Italians challenged the Cubans for control of Bolita. And you have some very, a very ugly decade or two of gangland slayings. In the 1950s, this all changed, and it was the beginning of the end of Bolita. In 1950, an obscure U.S. Senator from Tennessee, Estes Kefauver, is looking for an issue that he could ride to the presidency. And he thought organized crime would be good. First of all, you're not, you're not making anyone at home mad because uh, most of the gangsters were Italians and Jews who lived in the Northeast or now the growing Southwest or Vegas or, or Florida. So uh, 
he does this, and he goes around the country in what's called the Kefauver Commission. And this, this makes early television. It's one of the first dramatic uses of television. And they come to Tampa, and, and they have these flow charts, and they, they're indicting the sheriff, and it humiliates Tampa. At this time, Tampa is very worried about its Sunbelt image, and it finally begins to crack down on Belita. Moreover, the young veterans who have returned from World War II feel that, that the future of Tampa, has to, we have to clean up the image here. So they get involved in the in the reform efforts there. So Belita by the uh, by the late 50s is is kind of reduced, but Belita never again after the 50s has its clout. I interviewed Dr. Marmino and others for the podcast series A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. That was Dr. Gary Marmino, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.